Shoebill cockatrices are larger than their colifed cousins, and are the result of eggs left with crocodiles and other large reptiles for incubation. These beady-eyed creatures have two long, powerful legs and a giant crocodile's tail. Their mouths are filled with jagged teeth, and unlike other cockatrices, they have a taste. They have a taste. They have a taste for flesh. Often when a cockatrice mother returns to steal her shoebill hatchlings back, she is in for a cruel surprise. Managing to successfully petrify the crocodile, she turns her back to signal to her hatchlings that they should jump on and be carried back to the flock. Instead, they attack their mother, tearing her to pieces and feasting on her flesh. From then onwards, the shoebill hatchlings hunt together as a flock until they come of age and strike out on their own. Some adult shoebill cockatrices will join a flock of coiffed cockatrices, occasionally eating one of the flock to satisfy their hunger. However, this is a rare occurrence because though shoebill cockatrices enjoy meat, they're also lazy. Often the migratory frantic life of coiffed cockatrices is too much for a shoebill cockatrice and the creatures live lazy lives. It's only frightening and hunting when it can no longer ignore the hunger in its belly. Theoretically, the feathers of a shoebill cockatrice can be used in a potion to remove the cockatrice petrification from a creature. They must be boiled for three days straight and mixed with dragon's tears. Once the potion is ready, it should be poured over the petrified victim, and with any luck, they will become unpetrified and be very much alive. Hello and welcome back to Making a Monster. I'm Lucas Zellers. I'm very excited to bring you the first of several episodes that I recorded at Gen Con. I went to Gen Con with these two creators in mind because their project Atlas Animalia made the monstrosities that populate Dungeons & Dragons feel more real to me than they ever had. If a cockatrice is a hideous hybrid of lizard and bird and bat, then of course it makes sense that there would be separate birds and separate lizards and separate bats that made it up, and the world exploded. Now we have not just 700 stat blocks for monsters, but a whole panoply of unique species with unique life propositions living out their lives in the magical habitats that D&D has made for them. Just as a quick note for this episode... Recording audio at Gen Con proved to be more challenging than I thought, so this episode isn't up to my usual standard of highly produced quality. I have done everything I can to make it as listenable as possible, and future episodes do improve as my technique and experience with the equipment and the context that I had improve. So for now, let me introduce you to the two people who made this project possible. My name is Andreas Walters, and I am the founder and creative director of Metal Weave Games. Uh, We are a publishing house, and... I'm responsible for pretty much the coordination, production, and fulfillment of all projects, as well as a lot of the like first seeds of inspiration that go into all the products. And so Atlas Animalia was... I was sort of the creative director, um, and I'll collaborator with uh, Sarah Dollinger on the production of the book. And so we created the creatures together, and I just I worked on getting all the contractors and writing and getting the book produced. And Sarah, tell me about you. All right, well, uh, my name is Sarah Dollinger, and I am a creature concept illustrator and sculptor. And for the Atlas Animalia, I worked on every illustration in the book, um, and we did it in a very um, pen and ink and watercolor-like style. How long did it take to put this book together? (laughs) I think it took me about six or seven months to do all the illustrations. And I want to say there's about 125, 130 in the book. 120-ish. How long did you spend writing it? And... uh, how long has it been since you had the idea? So the idea actually came from me spotting a piece of art that Sarah put out. 
Um, I believe it was a concept between like Albert Evolution. It wasn't Albert's. It was some other creature. It was the Boulets. Yeah, it was the Boulets. Yeah. yeah. Um, the land shark, and she had like here is the land bullet, and then here is like a very here's two variants of it, or two three variants of it ecologically. And so I, and that was on the Facebook D and D group. <laughs> and so I reached out and I'm like, this is an amazing idea. I make books. Let's make a book. <laughs> and lo and behold, we made a book. Um, the whole process took around like six to seven months just to put the entire book together. So while she was illustrating, like once we picked out the creatures, we then were, you know, our writers can write without the complete art. Um, like we can get sketches or whatever as we were going. Um, but once we had like the four for each species, then we could okay. run with that. Uh, so at this point, we have to we have to start breaking this down. Um, uh, what's kind of the elevator pitch for Atlas and Amalia, and how did you decide how to put it together? What were like the you know the four per species that kind of watchwords that you had for how this is constructed? So for me, Atlas and Amalia was really a how do we show different creatures in different lights? Um, and with me having an environmental background and loving animals, I really wanted to see how we could portray them in different lights. So actually in Kickstarter, so we picked like a small handful of creatures that we were like for sure going to do in the book. And then on Kickstarter, we actually had backers vote for which creatures were going to be in the book. So a good, like, 70% of them, we didn't, we, we had a good guess of, like, which ones are going to make it, like, from the Baby Best Jerry and stuff like that. You know, there's the handful of popular ones. So we knew those were going to be in, but then, like, as the book got bigger, that added more scope to the book. And so that's how we kind of figured out, like, you know, oh, we're going to be doing hydros. Oh, we're going to be doing um, the sphinxes, you know, different versions and types of them. And then to the first part of the question of, like, how did we decide, we wanted to showcase like the base creature in our own light and then show three different ecological variants of that. So one, you know, you, know, you have a bulet, for example, since we're talking bulets for the time being, you have like the basic land shark. Okay, well, what's its base environmental condition? Like where do, where do you find the common bulet? You know, is it in like a light rocky, you know, mountainside or hillside? Or is it like, you know, in a grassland or like, you know, ideal farmland? Like what country, like if we were thinking about ecology, like where do I think I'm going to find one? And then from there, where would it look like, what would it look like in other ecosystems? And that was my real draw was where where else can I see these? Like, what do they look like in the Arctic? You know, how are their hunting going to be different? What, how is it going to be shaped differently? And so that's where the impetus of, like, doing a couple. Now, obviously, you could do a ton of variants for each one. Like, heck, we're working on a little owlbear lore book, and it's like, how many different kinds of owlbears are we going to make? And, you know, you can go down to the deep end of that. But we liked doing it in an entryway because you can assign one creator or one, like, um, one writer to, like, one beast own all of the variants of that beast and then i can make it out modularly and review it easier to produce and faster to review sorry that was a long answer <laughs> you had a lot of ground to cover mm-hmm. uh sarah tell me if you could so do you remember that first uh land shark sketch <laughs> very well actually that was um one of the most interesting days of my life so um i wanted to I had just recently decided that I was going to try and break out of my studio life as a studio artist and go freelance and one of the things I really wanted to do yeah it's it's kind of a scary step too and one of the things I wanted to do was get into like you know more gaming art and stuff like that so I was talking to um, you know a couple colleagues and they said why don't you make a promo piece and I'm always fascinated with like you know 
I'm always reading books about nature, watching biology, like, you know, biography shows or um, biology shows. And I got this idea to do what happens if you put a monster in a different environment. So I take like a week or so, I flesh out the idea, I sketch it up and, you know, I threw it up on the uh, D&D Facebook group and I didn't think much of it. I took my dog for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I come back, and there's like 100,000 likes on it, it's got like 30,000 yeah. 30, shares, it's got hundreds of comments, and this is in the tour, like one dog walk. <laughs> so, this was back in 2017, too. Yep, yep. Oh, this was back in 2017. The Kickstarter was popular, but it wasn't at a tight yet. Yeah, so it was it was absolutely wild, and I um, a couple people reached out to me. Andreas was one of them, and you know he was the one that had the most interesting idea. Basically, he was just like, "Do you want to make this, but more, and into a book?" <laughs> and, and I was like, "Yes, I would love to make this, but more, and in a book." So that's how we started. Perfect. So you guys talked about uh, environmental backgrounds and kind of your interest in that. Where does that come from for you? Uh, we'll, we'll start with you, Sarah. Uh, was it just like a, a hobby interest or was this a, a part of the background that you had? Because I know there's such a thing as paleo and environmental artists and things oh, like yeah. that. Oh yeah, I do scientific illustration as well um, on occasion. Yeah, um, the it's a lot easier and the jobs are a lot quicker in this industry. The scientific illustration, it's because there's so much science that needs to be done. There's The jobs are a lot more spaced, but I do do them as well. I've worked for ichthyology departments, herpetology departments, um, however, uh, my love of animals started when I was two and I figured out how to work a black and white TV with rabbit ears and turn on PBS by myself and watch nature and <laughs> yeah, like the, the like the PBS nature documentary so I'm just like this little two-year-old being like watching the, my animal shows and you know my folks were like she's watching animal shows that's cool and it never stops just never stops so I've, I think I've seen every documentary that the BBC's ever made nice. at one point I think I've seen every animal documentary back when YouTube was new at one point I think I have seen everyone on YouTube. Now I can't because it's so huge now, but yeah. Animal Planet. Yeah, <laughs> I was all about Animal Discovery Planet, Channel. all about Discovery Channel, National Geographic, you know, all that stuff. It's just something that I love. And then um, it's kind of like a natural thing. It's like, you know, you start, you, you love animals, you start drawing animals. And also my, um, my dad, he's a huge Tolkien nerd. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with The Hobbit as like my bedtime story. So I mean, you know, you're exposed to trolls and dragons and stuff like that. So, you know, as you're growing up, all of this sort of marries together and, you know, then you get a creature designer. <laughs> <laughs> At art, you got a creature designer. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So where did you get, we talked earlier about spreadsheets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, was your, uh, what was your environmental background that you brought today? So my environmental background, I actually had like an adoring love of animals um, and like rearing animals. I ended up like in my household, we had a dog, a cat, and about probably a total of 37 birds. Uh, we bred and sold cockatiels. And we had budgies and finches at some point. Before, I, when I was a baby, we had cockatoos and cockatiel, or not cockatiels, um, macaws. So, like, I was around birds, like, my entire life. And I loved them. Like, interestingly, career-wise, was going to go into environmental and planning um, for the ways my life took me. Uh, it was, like, architecture 
urban planning and then environmental science. So environmental science, urban planning. Um, and so that was sort of like my, the environmental science is more ecology slash ecological preservation. And then with like a, all the animal stuff was all prior to that. And then obviously being a D, introduced to D&D at a young age, you know, the monster manual and just flipping through and like my love of shocker lizards and druid and druid ranger, obviously also growing up with Tolkien and the Hobbit. Um, reading as like one of the awesome book and then Dinotopia. Yeah. That was a very Yeah, so there was just a lot of that in the history and love of animals and like I've like having so many birds it's like, yeah, I wanna be the um there's a Druid third edition class in the book of um or Masters of the Wild, the little short supplement for third edition for Rangers, Druids and the other nature class <laughs> um and they in there there's a subclass or a prestige class called the tamer of beasts which would give you just more hit dice of beasts and you could have it in across multiple animals and so my goal was always to have like a druid sh- uh with an army of shocker lizards <laughs> because each additional shock lizard would add a d6 of damage and then if you increase the hit dice of shocker lizards, you could probably you can make it to a, like a large size or if you get a if you're a small like a halfling or something, you can make it medium sized and ride it. Now you can see where this is going. <laughs> so, that was that was my always my goal was uh, a druid riding shocker lizards with an army of shocker lizards around them. Like look at shocker lizards. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so this is like we're 12 minutes in and this is usually the point at which I can begin to ask the point of the interview at all. Um, now, I have my favorite from this book, but I'm curious to see, is there a, like, and I know choosing your favorites from among the things that you've made is like, uh, you know, it's, it's not, not very easy to do. Uh, is there one that you would want to focus on? Honestly, let alone it's been several years since we've worked on this. It's been, what, five years? Yeah, about five years. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. That, like... This was, yeah, uh, we, we went forth and created a whole subclass of Beastmasters, which were people that went out and, like, learned about animals. That was awesome. Let's do this one. I love that one. The this one, the well, this one was an iconic one. It was uh, one of so my favorite. Looking through the book now, because it has been five years, and, man, it's been a while. Yeah, and a lot has gone on. <laughs> yeah, a lot has happened in the world in the past five years. Um and I think let's look at the shoebill cockatrice. Um, now, honestly, like all of these creatures, we in, looked at individually and like picked which creature combinations we were gonna do, how to present it, or what way to best present it. And you know, Sarah, you did an amazing job on all of them. But let, for okay. favorites, the shoebill cockatrice, because shoebills are they herons? Are they? I think they're related to storks. storks. Yeah, they're a weird creature, but they are also terrifying in their own right. And then Sarah's illustration of a, like, the shoebill cockatrice, which we called a, there is one that we called death roll, is terrifying. Like, I, yes, like, you know, you see the gifts of the uh, shoebill and, you know, they're already terrifying as is. Now give it the ability to have, like, you know, petrifying stare. Yeah, I'm terrified. So yeah, let's talk about a let's talk about the cockatrice as uh, as a as a feature because it, it counts in D and D calls it a monstrosity um, because it's some stuff smooshed together. Uh, so what are what are the 
bits of the what are the bits of a cockatrice that you had to add? So I think it's it's always like some sort of bird, and then it's like some sort of reptilian thing, mm -hmm. and then it has uh, the petrifying gaze. And I think that those are like kind of the three points that you have to hit if you're going to be making cockatrice variants. So whose tail was that, Saint? Michael, St. George, one of the knights, uh, oh, founding right. knights tales. Yeah. It's a beast, yeah, with a uh, reptilian, with like a chicken or with a bird um, features. And how it turned it to stone actually isn't really defined other than the fact that, what is it, a rooster's crow or yeah. a weasel are the things that would like terrify it or scare it away. Mythology is a wonderful thing. Right. Um, or rather, um, uh, England folklore. <laughs> Old English folklore, huh? So when you were putting this together, uh, I think the thing that grabbed me about the book, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that you had a specific species in mind when you were choosing which bits to smush together. Yeah, so a lot of the times um, we would take your, you know, your sort of base creature. So if you're doing a cockatrice, you're like, okay, we need a bird, we need a reptile. And then we'd go from there. So then you take that and you're like, okay, where do we want this to exist? And so we were thinking, okay, this one will exist in a kind of a marshy, swampy sort of environment. So then that narrows down your bird choices and your reptilian choices. And then what you do after that point is you're like, okay, and which ones are scary? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're like, So you know, like which one is going to be cool to fight? That's one thing I always try and think about is like, because you know, I play D and D and stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, so what would freak me out? What would I be like? What I, <laughs> I wanted people to curse my name at times. <laughs> I love that. So we should have made that a forward or a footnote. <laughs> the opener. So so that's what that's whenever I would think about like what am I going to select? Because like I mean like with the the shubo cockatrice, you know, it's okay. We have an aquatic sort of environment. I could have picked a duck. You know, like that's not that scary. But so I went with the, the Shoebill stork because they're essentially dinosaurs in their own right. And then we added in some crocodilian features and stuff like that because obviously, you know, all the crocodilians are, you know, powerful, aggressive, you know, monsters, stuff like that. So I figured marrying the two together would m create a really nice, horrible thing to have to deal with. And I mean, like, I make monsters, so I mean, I made. It monstrous. <laughs> yeah, the glowing eyes and like the black aura did not help at yeah. all. <laughs> you know, it was really fun to do that one. I love doing that one. Yeah. So did you get art for that before you worked on the stat block? We actually don't make any stat blocks. So, well, we did um, eventually. So Atlas on Amalia, or a lot of our books that we make are lore books or systemless books that we want to explain the creature in a way that anyone can use it and be inspired. Um, and so for a lot of our books, like for Atlas on Money specifically, we go into like, you know, the diet, the mating, the ecology of the creature. And then we go into the variants and talk about, you know, how did they adapt to the environment? What are, how do they hunt? What abilities do they use? So like in some of them, like I know some of our basilisks and stuff, like they'll turn their prey to stone and then go fish it out, dive to the bottom of the river and pick it up or something like that, or when it slows down too much. And so with each creature variant, we would look at, one, how does it hunt and function in the environment, but also how do the locals perceive it? 
Um, and so, like, part of the end of it is, like, the mythology that comes around it. Are there legendary versions of them that people are, you know, have stories about or have tales that, you know, they want to avoid? Um, and so Death Roll was one of these, several creatures in which there are legendary or mythical versions of them. That sounds like how folklore gets started. And it's, a lot of it's based on folklore or, like, you know, the, the D&D-isms. Um, and the team we put together, like... Honestly, they I had them pick which favorites they wanted to write for. Like, I want people who I work with to be inspired. I want to inspire them to do their best work. Because I'm a bad writer, and I take forever writing. And so I would rather inspire people who I think will do the good work, be inspired and do the best work they can. Because if they're interested and eager and down to like put their best to the page, because they're, they their love of it, they're going to put out the best kind of work. For the shoe cockatrice specifically, and then like as an as an example of what the book is trying to do, um, there's a conversation that D and D is having about animality and humanity and monstrosity and otherness. And what do you think that this particular project is adding? Do you want to go or? That's I know a it's a question. That's, that's, that's a deep question. That's pretty deep. I tend yeah. to throw people in the deep end on this show. Yeah. So I would listen to a couple of your other past interviews. Um, Lo, lo and behold, what I listened to the podcast I'm about to go on to. Amazing. Uh, I know, right? Uh, Got to do your research. Um, in that, I think there's a balance in terms of understanding, like, one part that's like, you know, there's a game, we kill creatures, or creatures are invading, you know, there's that part of a simple game, simple mindset. And then on the other hand, there's the, we are invaders of this land, and we're kind of sort of just perpetuating violence. And it's two lines to walk. And that's actually something we had to address when we were doing the Sphinxes, because, you know, and other creatures that we have in our books is, you know, these are intelligent species. Uh, I think the correct word is, you know, sapience versus sentience. These are sentient creatures. They, you know, they can think for themselves, they act for themselves, they have their own societies. And we are creating variants in them with the creatures that are, you know, also monsters, or you were, they're in a book with creatures that are monsters or, you know, beasts. I mean, monstrosity is a beast, you know, it's just a different type of beast. Um, whereas, you know, sentient creatures are sentient people. They are peoples. And so when we designed it, we wanted to ensure that they had a culture and that we wanted to say that humanity is reducing them because of their expansion of society or, you know, civil, civilization, quote unquote. Um, is expanding and reducing the populations of these other societies that exist outside. Because, you know, humans aren't the only civilization that's out there, and buildings are not the only form of civilization. And it's a constant discussion, because the best job that we can do is still not going to be good enough, but we can make at least progress in being better at it. Part of the reason why I hire a lot of freelancers and contributors to the books that we do is so they can tell the stories that I cannot. Uh, and I make that a very huge emphasis because I know I'm going to do it wrong if I do it myself. And even if, you know, that doesn't absolve me or the work that everyone else does, um, because you can only be slightly less blind. That's, I mean, you're still bound to make mistakes and you can only just do a better job and continue to do a better job. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it gets it gets very deep very quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, those are the, the 
I can tell I've hit where I want to be when I start hearing things like every and always and we should. Uh, <laughs> which is, you know, which is, I think, the magic of the show and nothing that we have to apologize for. Uh, so is there, uh, is there anything to add that you want to add to that, Sarah? I think he hit the nail on the head, honestly. <laughs> I don't think I could have done a better job. <laughs> yeah, because, like, for when we did the Sphinxes, like, you know, we want, we want in one example is, like, you know, we want to do representation of cultures and how do we make it like for in, in this specific instance we modeled them after specific cultures now that in retrospect you know is not necessarily a good thing like well, not in specific cultures like we have an egyptian sphinx like you know you can do some of the symbology uh some of the patterning but then when you look at like oh what other kinds of sphinx are there you know do we look at other cultures or do we create new cultures and no matter which way you go you're going to have a problem and in this case, we looked at trying to sort of represent cultures that would best fit it. But even then, you know, you're still going to run into issues. And we can only write with the most delicate hand possible um, with the people and the best advice, you know, and best reviews that we can do. Is there value that this has to the, con the, conserva uh, sorry, the conversation around conservation? If you get an answer, you can go. Yeah. It does actually, in a way. So I would say, like, the baby bestiary, ironically enough, is the most focused on conservation because it, in, well, I mean, it doesn't encourage you to, like, steal a baby. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that part I've been editing out slowly. The introduction right. we've been modifying. Um, well, this is not to steal a baby, but it's like, it is an option, but don't do it. Um, but, because you're a terrible person if you do, or buy it from the black market. Yeah, no. Um, but, like, the fact that, like, people who acquire a baby through whatever means, you know, if they, you know, find an, inf you know, a, a hatchling or something like that, they want to raise it, not eat it or kill it or whatever. Most, most people that you run into, they want to raise the beast um, or, you know, let it back into its wild. And I think a lot of people do have the inclinations of, conservation more than destruction it's only when faced with a a force that they cannot pass they resort to violence and so atlas anomalia sort of plays into um the you know this is probably a force that's going to get in your way but at the same time we show what else there is out there um you know you can't know like unless um a trip to the who is the guy that took the trip to the Galapagos? Darwin? Yes. Derp. Uh, <laughs> my brain is like Captain Shackleton. Oh, that's uh, some other story. <laughs> that's Antarctica. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's yeah, where that's coming Shackleton from. Okay, I'm like, why is that name in my head? Yep. Uh, but like Darwin, like all the sketches, people won't know those creatures are there unless someone goes and records it. And so that's what sort of this book was, was someone who went out and recorded a bunch of lore from the peoples in the area and their own notes to put together into... A book so that the other people could learn about them and so it plays into that in the sense that there are other creatures out there yes they're the more dangerous ones um but in the sense that there is a world out there that's more diverse than the one that people are um that people are comfortable with or aware of that i think that plays into that pretty well and but of course it's you know more beasts that people are willing to fight but that's also why we don't do stat box either Fascinating choice. Gosh, I could I could get deeper into that, but I won't. Um, Fifteen minutes aside. <laughs> sure, we got time. Um, 
I mean, I think it would be belaboring the point that, like, if okay. it has a stat block, you are supposed to fight it by the nature of the game. Yeah. And by and not giving it a stat block, you've, you've left the door open to a different approach. Now, admittedly, we have created separate stat blocks. Um, I know, it's a completely separate product. They have to pay extra for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but originally, it is, like, you know, the book aside, people have the book, no stats. So if they want to be inspired, they have a world that they can look at. Right. So, and I should ask at this point also, um, every every cockatrice, despite this one being a shoe belt, could in a in a home game be represented by the cockatrice stat block that's in the monster. Uh, kind of. <laughs> we do modify <laughs> the abilities of some creatures. Like okay. some will have different abilities. Uh, I know, like basilisks, we messed with a little bit. Yep. Yep. Um, so not all of them turn to stone, um, but. The, you could use the base as a foundation, and we do modify it a little bit from there. Great. This is the other fun part of the interview, is now that we've heard about Atlas Animalia, first of, first of all, how do we get it? And uh, second, what else are you working on that you want people to know about? So Atlas Animalia can be found on the Metal Weave Games store, metalweavegames.com or metalweave.games. And outside of that, working on, uh, f there's a lot of projects I'm working on. Um, I think currently is fulfillment of the owlbear plush. So if you like owlbears, we got you covered. If you like snowy owlbears, because we got one on the cover of the book, and the D&D movie's coming with a snowy owlbear, you know, an unexpected product tie-in. Uh, <laughs> very unexpected. You can get it at owlbearplush.com. Nice. Um, the project that I'm working on now is called Astrofauna. And you can learn more about it at astrofauna.com. I'm creating a whole alien creature world. Um, it follows six alien scientists as they go and travel and do their studies and the adventures that they encounter on each planet that they go and study. Um, currently, three chapters into about a six-chapter book, and um, you know I'm developing prints and um, I do sculpting as well. So there's going to be um, little figurines. Uh, that I make and stuff like that. So that's that's mostly what I've been working on. Um, I also do freelance work. So in general, I do my freelance work and then I do Astrofauna after that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. This is the show. <laughs> um, man, it's so weird. Uh, is, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure is a part of this conversation? Oh yeah, I mean like this this book was this book was like an absolutely dream project you know it's like one of those things like going back to you know me being the little kid that like watched all the nature shows being approached to do a project which takes all of my favorite monsters because the D&D 3.5 manual was like my my epiphany now, I have I still have my copy of it and it's so worn it's like I don't touch it that much anymore because like I think it will break like I think it will fall apart like disintegrate from love um, so essentially this was like you know, if you take so much love that you have in that monster manual, and then you're approached by someone who says, hey, do you want to do this? And then make like three other versions of the creatures that you love that much. Uh, it was a real dream project for me. So I hope people go and check out the book so they can actually, you know, see what all the little variants are and stuff like that. And um, make cool homebrew campaigns because I love homebrew campaigns. So <laughs> yeah, it was a great project. Thanks for listening to Making a Monster. If you like what you've heard and you want to support the show, please share it with the people you play games with. I guarantee Atlas Animalia is going to help them see the monsters in their games in a more vibrant and lively way than they ever have. 
big thanks to Andreas Walters and Sarah Dallinger for appearing on this show, and to my wife Jen who helped us out with the opening narration. Atlas Animalia hits on a lot of the same topics and issues I'm exploring in my project Book of Extinction, so if you want to see real-life animals resurrected as monsters for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, check it out at scintilla.studio extinction. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash extinction. Every new download of the preview on that site is a vote of confidence in this podcast and in my work as a writer, and it really helps keep the show going. You can also review the show on Spotify. If you've listened to more than 30 seconds of it, give me five stars if you feel I've earned them. It may seem like a small thing, but it really does help new people discover the show and take a chance on me as a creator. And it's a real gift to myself and the people I feature on the show. Making a Monster will continue with more interviews from Gen Con and more stories of extinct animals brought to life for 5th edition. Stay tuned.